on Monday, I was driving up Adams Street. Uh, I had been down in Jonesboro, and I was coming up, and I was down in the south end of Adams Street, and uh, I saw over on the side, like near the curb, there was an elderly black gentleman, and he was standing there facing traffic, and he had a huge, like, a trash bag, but not like a regular trash bag, like double those normal size and the super thick type of black bags uh, that would be just, I mean, huge, huge, like trash bag. And I looked over at him, and when he looked at me and saw that I was seeing him, he quickly went like this, like he was hailing a cab, and uh, I understood immediately he was asking for a ride. So I, I pulled over, and um, uh, he came up to the car and I told him to put his bag in the back. It wasn't trash. It was all of his earthly possessions, just in this heavy-duty plastic bag. Um, and I got my stuff out of the front seat so he could get in. And uh, he got in and thanked me for, for stopping. Um, I don't know if you remember, but Monday was still pretty cold. Um, and we started and I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to the mission. And I said, okay, I can take you there. I said, but you're going to have to give me instructions because I've never gone there from this way and the one-way streets are going to get me messed up. So you give me instructions on how to get there. And he said, okay. And we introduced ourselves. His name was Lance. And uh, he said that he was only going to be at the mission for a few hours and then there were arrangements for him to get a ride to Kokomo where there was a room already set up for him and waiting. Uh, but he was very grateful for the ride. While we were going, and he's telling me, all right, turn left here and, you know, go down here. He said, hey, you don't happen to have a few dollars that I could have for some cigarettes? And I said, no, I don't. Now, I had just been to the bank, um, just like an hour earlier, and I did have two $20 bills. But I felt no compulsion to give him $20 for cigarettes. I just didn't think that that was something I needed. I was, I was grateful he was honest about it. He didn't say, hey, I, I need it for you know my prescriptions or whatever. He was honest. Do you have a couple of bucks for some cigarettes? And I told him, no, I don't think I do. I even told him, I said... Uh, I've, I've got a couple of 20s, and I need those for something specific, which I did. I delivered him to the door that uh, he pointed out that he wanted to go to, and I wished him well in his travels to Kokomo. And uh, I drove on my way about my business. In my opinion, I had done no less and no more than my conscience had urged me to do. And I went about my day with a clear conscience. It is my belief that if I had ignored his clear request for my assistance on that cold winter's day in transporting him two or three miles, something that I could easily accommodate, it really cost me nothing more than five minutes of my time, if I had not done that, I believe that I would have been in the wrong because I saw the need, I could accommodate the need, 
And it really wasn't a hardship on me to accommodate that need. And so I felt compelled to do so. There's a single verse in Scripture which seems a little bit out of place where it is found. It is, however, perfectly applicable on its own. You could take this verse without any verses around it, and it makes perfectly good sense, and it is applicable all on its own. You don't need necessary context for it to make sense. I want us to take a look at it this morning. And I want us to take a look at what some of the contexts are that might be applicable to how it should be applied. It's a very small but meaningful bit of Scripture. And it's the foundation for this entire sermon. Please turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You can look at this and simply take it at face value and it will be true with zero context. In fact, many scholars think that this verse was an existing saying in the Jewish community that they already said to each other, and he's simply applying it here in Scripture. But in doing so, it seems a bit vague. Something which makes this verse a little bit interesting to me, at least from a hermeneutic standpoint, is that it's placed directly after a passage about a specific teaching unique in Scripture. The the few verses that come just before this are found nowhere else in Scripture, and then this one follows it up. And this verse starts with the word, so. And it would very accurately tend to lead us to connecting it with that passage. You've got a passage that's nowhere else in Scripture. It's three verses long. And then this verse that can stand by itself, starts with, so do this. And that would tend to lead us to believe that it's meaning it's applicable to those verses just before it. Something that would be useful, something that would apply, and it might be the appropriate way to interpret this verse But it might be something more than that. Let's take a look at it. We're going to talk, we're going to go into the the four verses just before this, the passage that is about including room for God in our plans for life. Go back just a few verses, uh, James 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Many theologians believe that this is the intended context that verse 17 is referring to. That if you know the right thing and don't do it, then it's sin. It certainly wouldn't be wrong to apply it that way. James has taken a long paragraph in his fairly short letter to chastise their mindset, which it would seem is a bit arrogant and a bit flippant of the Lord's involvement in life. Like, well, I'm just going to do this. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of a bad mindset for you to live by. The passage recommends strongly, one might say commands, that people be humble enough to realize that nothing they have made plans for will succeed without God allowing it. And indeed, that is true. God is sovereign. And nothing can happen without His permission. As it states, we don't even know if God will allow us to live past tomorrow or not. We might be dead before anything that we're boasting about going and doing could ever happen. Now I'm going to take a little aside here for a moment. I want to be clear about something. To recognize that nothing can happen without God's permission should not be confused with the mentality that everything that happens is directly caused by God. That God made it happen. This is a fine enough mentality when we are blessed with something and the outcomes are good in life. To say that, well, God made that happen, that seems nothing more than giving praise to God. But it gets a bit strange when terrible things happen to people. I once watched a prepackaged Sunday school video at this church. Kathy brought it to me and said, Hey, I think this is strange. Would you please look at it and tell me if I'm off base here? So I watched it. And the woman that was on the video was saying quite boldly that God caused her to be raped so that she could be a blessing to other women struggling through that nightmare. Let me be clear on something. This is blasphemy. God does not sin, nor does He cause sin. This is the inherent flaw in the Calvinist stance. To believe their position against free will is to believe that God makes people sin. An absolutely terrible position. And one they try to skirt around with some rather silly wordplay while meaning the same thing. No. That God allows something to occur is not the same as saying that It has his blessing, or that he caused it to happen. 
It is merely saying that God does not dictate the every action of every person. It is also fine to say that God can use a tragedy that was occurred by someone's sin, take that situation and use it to bring about good, such as this woman being able to be a blessing to other women who were struggling through a time in their life. To say that God can use it is not the same as to say that he caused it. God might allow someone to travel to another city and do business and make a profit. And we should definitely acknowledge his divine authority in allowing it. Lest we be arrogant and say that we, all on our own, manipulate the workings of this world completely without God's input. But saying it can only happen if God allows it is not identical to saying that God causes it. I hope you understand the difference there. Back to our original premise, done with my aside. It is entirely possible that James was just reinforcing this instruction, which is immediately before verse 17, our our main verse. And thus, verse 17 starts out with the word, so. But there's one odd thing about looking at it that way. The end of verse 16 points out very specifically that all such boasting is evil. So why would James then need to tack on verse 17 and say that if you know the good that you should give credit to God and acknowledge that you can only succeed if God permits it, that if you know to do this, which would be the good, and you don't do it, well, that's a sin. He just said that at the end of 16. To tack it on again in 17, to me, seems redundant. If you don't do this, it's evil. And oh, by the way, if you don't do this, it's sin. That's saying the same thing. Is it possible that that's why it's there? Absolutely. It could just be redundant emphasis on verses 13 through 16. But could it be something more? I think it very well could be. It seemed to me that this verse, being the last verse of chapter 4, could more easily be attached to the beginning of chapter 5. That instead of being about the verses just before, it's more for the verses that come after. The passage that comes right after this is about the rich who have abused the poor and taken advantage of them and done evil against them. But there are two reasons that I came to think that's not the case. That it doesn't apply to the things that come after. And that is, through my study I found that The beginning of chapter 5 is more than likely addressed to non-believers. Chapter 5, if you look at that, that is almost certainly addressing non-believers. And so it wouldn't apply quite so well. Also, the beginning of chapter 5 is not sin by omission. This one verse at the end of chapter 4 
is saying sin is sin even if it's sin by not doing something. And in chapter 5, those passages, those verses there, those people are actively doing evil. There's no simply standing back and not doing anything. They're actively working against people, cheating them and robbing them of what they have coming. So I don't think that it does apply to that. If, however, when we're trying to figure out the proper application of this one verse, verse 17, if we look back just a few verses we can see something that's rather interesting. Back in James 4, verse 6, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from the Old Testament as it's translated in Greek. Specifically, excuse me, It comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It is again, like verses 13 through 16, saying that God doesn't like it when we're arrogant and proud. That's what that Old Testament passage is about. So these two areas, they link together pretty well. And it isn't a stretch to think that while James was quoting from Proverbs 3, another section of Proverbs 3 might jump to mind. One which just fits like a glove with James 4.17. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those who it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it, when you have it there with you. I'd like to take a moment and compare the two verses from Proverbs, again with our our main verse here today, James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Doesn't that strike you as incredibly similar? Let's look at them again. Proverbs 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it. When you have it with you. And James 4.17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. I think that the concept of putting people off or not immediately providing the help that you know that they need would seem to fit in with this somewhat oddly placed verse. And it would also be very applicable to a plethora of other situations. After all, the one instance in Luke where Jesus was talking about doing righteousness by your neighbor, it was questioned by somebody who wanted to justify himself. Jesus is saying, do good to your neighbor, and the one guy says, yeah, but 
But who's my neighbor? Who specifically is my neighbor? Jesus answers this by giving the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to point something out about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus, in that parable, never addresses the robbers and thieves and guys who beat up the person who's left to die. That's understood as being sinful. That's just a given. He doesn't address them because it doesn't need addressed. Who does he address in that, in that parable? He addresses the two people who don't do anything. They walk by on the other side of the road and just go about their business. And the one person who is made out to be the good guy is the person who does something that most people would say, well, you have no obligation to do that. He helps the wounded man. The Samaritan comes over and helps him out. He didn't do something actively wrong. He did something actively right. The first two people, I think it was a priest and a Levite, they didn't do anything. But they're made out to be pretty much as bad a bad guys as the robbers who beat the man. It was sin by omission because they didn't do anything. Jesus there in that parable and the Holy Spirit in James here is telling us that the absence of evil is not good enough. To simply have your life not doing evil is not what Christianity is about. Many, many people the world over live lives without a single instance of doing outright evil to other people. A coward can keep his nose out of other people's business, never actively harm a soul, but is that good enough? People might say, well, I'm not saved by my actions. I'm saved by the grace of God. True enough. But if you haven't noticed, nearly the entire book of James is telling us that grace without works is dead. It isn't the life of someone washed in the blood and filled with the Spirit. It isn't how we're meant to live. If you question the likelihood of this application to the life of the Christian, then take just a moment and read one of the many passages where Jesus gives us in the Gospels that is on this very topic. I say that because when I was thinking about how many times Jesus talked about you must do the good works. You can't just not do the bad. I had three pop up immediately in my head before I even did a search. And when I did some cross-references, there were quite a few of them. We're going to look at one. <coughs> Matthew chapter 25. Verses 41 through 46. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then he will also answer, saying, Lord, excuse me, they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a cliche in books, movies, TV shows, everywhere, when people will say something along the lines of, I never did anything bad to anybody in my life. What did I ever do to deserve this? I will point this out again at the risk of being redundant. A hermit who hates humanity and holds themselves up in their home and never goes out and never does anything good can say with perfect utility that they never did anything to harm anybody. For the Christian... That's not the question. The mere absence of evil toward people is not what our Lord and our Master and Savior has called us to. He has called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Simply not doing bad to people isn't good enough for what Jesus has called us to do. He has called us to actively seek out the good that we can do towards others. And when we're in a situation where we know what we should be doing, and we just say, nah. To him, that is sin. We tend to start to get a lot like the Pharisees and we go, hey, you know what? There's a list of things that are bad and I don't do those. So I'm all set. What we need to do is go, what could I possibly do that would be for the good of others? 